chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. And so we were reading a little bit ahead, achieving ahead. We're not going to be quite that dark and depressive today about the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, we'll get there uh, in a couple of weeks. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 uh, this morning. So that's where we'll be uh, in our time uh, together. So if you got your Bibles open, you can open them to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. When I was growing up, I had a uh, propensity to, as soon as I got dressed for the day, uh, whatever the day was going to hold, I still do this. I get up and immediately get dressed. Uh, but from the ages of like six, seven, eight years old uh, through the early parts of middle school, as soon as I was dressed for the day, weather permitting, uh, I would be outside shooting basketball in the driveway. This is when I still held uh, firm to the belief that I was going to be uh, a long-tenured NBA player with a Hall of Fame career and more money than sense. And so every morning, as soon as I was dressed, I was up and at it. This was especially true on Sunday mornings because there was not the threat of having to go to school, which interrupted uh, my time to develop my greatness. And so my mother would tell me on Sunday mornings, when you are dressed for church, sit down and watch TV. Do not go outside and shoot basketball. Whatever you do, don't go outside. And so I would often listen, but most Sunday mornings I wouldn't. I would be find myself outside once again shooting basketball. And so we rolled up to church one Easter morning, uh, and we were out ready to go into church, and there was a basketball laying by the basketball goal uh, at the church that I grew up in. And so I ran over and thought, oh, the rest of my family's inside. I know my mom's told me not to do this, but let me get a couple shots up right quick. Sure enough, first shot goes up, go to chase the ball down, slip, fall, brand new Easter clothes, gouge a hole in my pants. And let me tell you something, at about eight years old, you don't know how to hide a gaping hole in the knee of your pants and your willful disobedience to your mother's direction. So I had to own the fact that my mother told me something to do and I'd chosen to ignore it. She, in a position of authority as my mother, had said, don't play basketball of all days in your Sunday best, but especially on the day like Easter. And I had to own up to the fact that I had broken her rules. And today, as we continue the story of Peter and John in the aftermath of the healing of the man at the temple that Luke records for us in Acts chapter 3, as we continue to follow along the narrative of this story and we catch up with these men today, they're going to be brought to the temple authorities and questioned regarding how and by what name they have healed this man. And they will, like me, but in the right way, defy the rule handed down by the authorities and continue to preach the name of Jesus. They're confronted and questioned and they have a moment we're going to discuss together this morning where they could have obeyed the authorities, but as they will testify themselves as we follow Jesus, we eventually come to a fork in the road with our faith. Where we have to decide if we will follow the decrees of man or if we will follow the decrees of our Lord and Savior. So we're going to look at what a faithful model of that looks like this morning. Let's pray and then we'll jump into Acts chapter 4 together. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful this morning. We are grateful for how your love has pursued us. We're grateful that we have known and tasted the goodness of the gospel. So God, as we consider Peter and John this morning, as we consider the early church and their faithfulness to your call to go to all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching everyone all that Jesus has commanded them, it didn't take long for them to find themselves at odds with the rulers and authorities of the day, and they had to make a decision. 
And in the faithfulness of their decision, God, this morning, help us see what it looks like to faithfully follow you. Help us see what it looks like to faithfully follow you in a world that would rather us do anything than speak the name of Jesus. Would you give us boldness? Would you give us courage? Would you give us tender hearts this morning? In Christ's name, amen. If you'll bear with me, I'm going to read all 22 verses we're going to cover this morning, and then we'll work our way through them uh, relatively quickly in our time together this morning. But this is what Luke records, beginning in Acts 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other, other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For what a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. It's interesting just in the plain reading of the text that the main issue for the ruling council is that the disciples are teaching in Jesus' name. Luke, in the ESV translation in verse 2, says that they were greatly annoyed. And when they get together after they've dismissed the disciples, they arrive at this realization. We cannot deny that a miracle has been done. We cannot refute the reality that a man over 40 years old who has never walked a day before in his life has been fully restored. And if we can't deny that, then the only thing we have left to do is to go to them and say, you're free to go about your business. But whatever you do, don't teach in the name of of Jesus. And so this frames our understanding of these 22 verses. They were annoyed that they were teaching, and their final verdict in how to punish them is to say, you can do whatever you would like, just don't teach in the name of Jesus anymore. So as we pick back up with the disciples this week, they are taken into custody for what amounts to a pretrial hearing. 
They're held overnight, and then the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, after holding them for an evening, reconvene the next morning to hold a formal interrogation. And all those who participate in the questioning of Peter and John represent those who were given authority to handle non-Roman empire-threatening matters within Jerusalem. Luke, in recording this moment where they are before the council, is highlighting how these men, Jesus' disciples, are like their master in the way that they are questioned. Jesus himself taught that no disciple is greater than his teacher or no servant is greater than his master. And so these disciples in these first kind of faltering steps of the church in action and acts all of a sudden find themselves squarely following the example of Jesus. Hold your place here in Acts 2, but turn back to Luke's gospel. Luke wrote Luke and he wrote Acts, so there's some continuity there when we consider it. So hold your place there and flip back with me to Luke chapter 20, especially the first eight verses. Here we have Jesus in the temple once again, just like the disciples here. He's teaching, but he's going to be interrogated in much the same way that Peter and John were by the rulers of Israel. This is what Luke writes for us in Luke 20, verses 1 through 8. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Notice the similarity of language. Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John, meaning John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus in Luke 20 has a very similar interaction, but Jesus' response is much different from the disciples in this. Jesus at that time is not ready to divulge to them the authority under which and by which he does these things. But when we get to Peter and John, Peter and John do not hold back in their answer about what authority, what power has been granted to you to heal a man over 40 years old who's been lame his entire life. So look back with me now in Acts chapter 4 and look at Peter and John's, especially Peter's response to the Jewish leaders in verses 8 through 11. Far from saying, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, which was Jesus' response, Peter goes full Peter on them. Then Peter, again filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter here does not withhold or shy away from the conflict that will come by the mention of Jesus' name. Remember, it's just in the second verse that Luke tells us they're greatly annoyed. Why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Peter would have known this. By the time we get to the next morning, there would have been a clear indication of what had drawn the ire of the rulers of the temple that day. And Peter does not shy away 
from the inevitable conflict that comes when the name of Jesus is professed. Now, we've grown up, especially if you're in the South, you've grown up in this insulated bubble. And the bubbles burst around us, in case you haven't figured that out yet. But we grew up in a bubble where it wasn't a big deal to mention the name of Jesus. It wasn't a big deal to tell people who Jesus was. Everybody kind of knew and understood and had some vague idea of who Jesus was, and it wasn't considered confrontational. But today, it becomes more and more of an understanding that when we clearly confess who Jesus is, we're inviting conflict. Not because we want to be confrontational, but because the name of Jesus is a line through the sand that people have to decide what they're going to do with this Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified and resurrected and ascending and coming again. And so to profess the name of Jesus, to confess the name of Jesus, is to know that in certain moments we will invite conflict. And Peter, through the indwelling of the Spirit, giving him strength and conviction, speaks truthfully that it is Jesus, not Peter, John, or any others, but Jesus himself who healed the man. And this declaration to the council is a charge against their unbelief of Jesus' resurrection because dead men cannot heal people, but risen and reigning saviors do. Peter's confession that it's Jesus who has done this and Peter's confession in the present tense of it's Jesus actively doing this is a declaration that Jesus isn't in the tomb you put him in. And whatever story you concocted with the soldiers to try to convince everyone that his body was stolen, it's not going to hold up as the church is verified in its message through the active work of Jesus in performing signs and wonders and miracles that would verify the proclamation that he is the Savior. And so for Peter to tell them this Jesus of Nazareth whom you crucified, whom God raised. And remember, we looked at it a couple weeks ago. This is the formula of gospel proclamation. What we witnessed was Jesus dead, God raised, and of this we are witnesses. The pattern continues here. Peter says, it was Jesus dead, and God raised. You killed Jesus, and it was God raising him, and now we are witnesses to it all together. But to confess that it's Jesus who did it, is to confess that Jesus is alive and well. And to confess that no one escapes having to answer the question of what they're going to do with Jesus. And oftentimes, if we're honest, we feel the tug of pulling back from a full confession of how we've seen Jesus work. We attribute it to good luck or to fortune or to happenstance. We attribute it to the miracles of modern medicine and i'm not saying that that's not a gift of common grace to us but if we believe in jesus then the cornerstone the understanding of how we observe and see life at work in the world is that god in christ is still actively working in the world and to confess christ today is to confess not that he was just a good teacher not that he was just someone with a great personality who let himself be killed at the hands of the empire to show us what decolonization could look like. Jesus is who he said he was. He was the prophesied Messiah who was crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected. And if we're going to confess him today, we confess the fullness of who he is. 
We do not stop short of where it begins to be offensive to those we're sharing the gospel. We do not be offensive. This is not a call to be a jerk. This is not a call to say, well, I can be as caustic as I want because I'm telling you the truth. Because we get to the end of the verses today, they notice that these men were with Jesus, that they had been with Jesus, that something about the life and ministry and power of Jesus at work in them had changed them. But it is to give a full confession to who Jesus is and let the people we're sharing it with wrestle with the truth of who Jesus is. But we need to give a full confession. A full confession of who Jesus is. And that's what they do. After Peter's answer to the question of who has supplied the authority and power for their healing and acts of mercy, the ruling class retreat to discuss exactly what they are going to do with these followers of Jesus. They have healed the man standing before them, and they cannot deny that a good and merciful deed has been done. However, they, being Ananias and Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the rest of the Sanhedrin, want to keep a firm hold on their earthly, Roman-infused power and position. So like most politicians, they move towards what is most expedient politically rather than what is true. So Luke tells us in 4, 15 through 17, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. The rulers discuss, agree, and they decide that the plan is going to be to charge these men with no longer speaking in Jesus' name. And notice what is just glaringly absent. They don't say anything about the healing. If you want to heal, it would appear they're saying, go about your healing ways. They don't say don't heal anymore. Because the world's fine if we want to do great works in the name of Jesus. The issue becomes when we begin to give voice to the fact that it's Jesus we are proclaiming. So they're like, look, keep healing people all you want to decide. This is a good thing. We don't really mind that lame people aren't clogging up the gates into the temple. Free up the flow of commerce in and out for us. That's great. But you're not going to mention his name anymore. And oftentimes, the world around us loves nothing more than for the church to be the church when it comes to acts of compassion and grace and mercy. And I am all for that. Wherever the church is, there should be the flourishing of the communities around us because we seek the good of the city where God has placed us. But if we're not careful, the not-so-subtle or sometimes overt message of the surrounding culture will become, do that, that's great. We don't need your Jesus. Open up your pocketbooks and create food pantries. Fill book bags before school starts. Meet expectant mothers where they are so that they would give birth to their children. Yes. Don't mention Jesus. We're good with anything you want to do in his name as long as you don't say his name. It has, the playbook hasn't changed from then until now. Everyone's okay with the church being the church when it comes to compassion and mercy and gracious acts that lead to flourishing. And I'm all for it. But that's half the equation of who we are as a church. The other half is the faithful proclamation in Jesus' name of who he is. 
And if you leave either side of that equation out, you don't get the fullness of the gospel. And oftentimes what happens is churches fall off on one of two sides. Really great with compassion and merciful and gracious acts of loving their community, but not a full proclamation of the gospel. Or a proclamation of the gospel that is so devoid of acts of love that it doesn't even feel like good news when we hear it. Both married together. That's what the disciples are going to model for us. And so we become captivated by Peter and John's response to the rulers in Acts 4, 18 through 20. They say, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're not making up anything new. They're simply bearing witness to what they've seen in the life and the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus, the things that they were firsthand eyewitnesses to. They bear witness to what they've seen. But they also bear witness to what Jesus taught. It's there in their response. What we have seen and heard, what we see are acts of compassion and healing and resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. We've seen those works. But we also testify to what we've heard, which is the teaching of Jesus. And this, especially in the face of persecution, has what has propelled the church forward for well over 2,000 years. The church finds its groove and finds its place when it's able to do both things well, but especially in the face of persecution to love and serve those who would persecute them, and to faithfully testify to who Jesus is in hopes that the very ones that would persecute them would become their brothers and sisters in the faith. We don't hold out the gospel in vain. We hold out the gospel because it's true. And the gospel has both a, a social and a confessional component to it. So we're left wondering, what made these guys defy the ruling of the Sanhedrin? What was the big deal about teaching in Jesus' name for Peter and John? Do you get the sense that maybe in this moment they could have co-opted the teachings of Jesus and assumed the mantle of his teaching, but just relabeled it? Maybe Peter and John's excellent adventure, like Bill and Ted's, but better. Maybe they could have just said, well, you know what, let's tamper down the name of Jesus. Let's, let's maybe take their advice. We're just getting started. We don't really know what the future is going to look like. Maybe the best thing we could do is to pull back for just a moment. But that's not what they do. And they give us the answer in Acts 4, 12 through 13. Peter says this, And there is no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You pick up there on the reason why they didn't back down from teaching in Jesus' name. For them, it's not primarily about the miracles either. Notice that their answer back is also devoid of a mention of the miracle. Why does Peter say that there, where is the preceding answer to the question of why they will not obey the Sanhedrin's rule. It's right here. Because there is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And as we talked about last week, every miracle, every sign, every wonder has an expiration date. Everyone healed by Jesus or by the apostles and the disciples also dies. Lazarus, resurrected, dies again. The only miracle that has no expiration date is the miracle of new life in Christ. And his, Peter says, is the only name under heaven by which you can be saved. So we're not going to shut up because there are not multiple ways up to God. There's a God who came for us in Jesus, and it's him we confess. And so the reason they won't take the half offer of do what you do but leave Jesus out of it is because they are thoroughly convinced, not partially convinced, not, well, maybe it'll be true tomorrow. They are convinced in the deepest parts of their soul and their bones that the only way to have your sins forgiven is through Jesus. And so, of course, they're not going to leave him out of it. They can't leave him out of it. They've been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. They were there through his teachings and his miracles. They were there through his confrontations with the religious leaders. They were there in his trial and his death and his resurrection and ascension. And now having been given the Holy Spirit, they cannot remain silent about what it is that they have seen and heard because what they've seen and heard is the, is the gospel and is how people, including those questioning them, are saved. And so while we may have surmised that it would have been expedient to obey the ruling handed down to them by the sand, we also have to consider that perhaps the most unloving thing they could have done was to not share the truth about the person and work of Jesus to those who were destined for an eternity in hell outside of having their heart changed by Jesus. Oftentimes, we trade expediency for the most loving thing we can do. Oftentimes, we forego the difficult moment that the conversation is going to bring and we, we lean into expediency rather than faithful proclamation. But sometimes expediency is the most unloving thing we can do. Because sometimes to be expedient is to rob people of the chance to hear the good news of how their sins can be forgiven and they can know eternal life in Jesus. And so what we're left with in the text today is the exclusive inclusivity of the gospel. This paradox of tension that exists in the person and work of Jesus. It is exclusive. Peter clearly says it. There is no other name given under heaven by which you can be saved. It is exclusive in that regard. But it is inclusive. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we are faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so it is both an inclusive and an exclusive claim, and it is a dividing line that has lived in history from the resurrection and ascension of Jesus through the first century until now. The exclusive claim to Christ as the only way to God and the only manner by which salvation can be secured is frowned upon in a continually growing hostile message to the ears of our society and culture today. That said... We must endeavor like Peter, John, the rest of the 12, and those faithful saints down through the ages of historic Orthodox Christianity to bear witness to the reality that it is only through 
Christ that salvation can be received. There's no off-ramp in the 21st century for another way to go about this. There's no gospel light that we can offer that would somehow allow us to straddle both worlds and offer some version of Jesus that wouldn't confront people in their sin, confront people in their lifestyles and ways of going about their living. You don't get a Jesus who just slides into your life and kind of joins with whatever else you're doing. To faithfully profess and proclaim Jesus is to give people the option between life and death. To give people the option between continuing dead in their sin or experiencing new life and forgiveness of sin. We cannot escape it. We cannot go. It's like the bear hunt song. Can't go around it. Can't. You got to go through it. You got to go through the faithful proclamation of who Jesus is day in and day out, both in what people see in your life and by what people hear from your life. What people see and how you treat them and what people hear and how you speak. And what you confess about who Jesus is. And so as we live our lives and by the power of the Spirit obey Christ and sharing the gospel, we're going to be met with some pushback, I think, in some of these following ways that I want to walk through with you really quickly. First is this. Some, when we say that Christ is the only way to salvation, may say it's arrogant. May say it's arrogant to claim to know truth and that Christ is the only way. However, it is just as arrogant, a truth claim, to claim to know that you know all truth and that Christ isn't the only way. We are free to deliver what we want in our current society. We just, can't, we just cannot tell anyone else that we are right. Our society is fine if you want to believe what you want to believe. But don't tell everyone else that you're right and they're wrong. That is to cross a sacred boundary in our society that will get you exiled, It'll get you castigated. It reminds me of a story about the late, great coach of NC State, Jim Valvano. He's coaching on the sidelines during a game, and a referee has been a poorly officiated game, which is how State feels most of the time. But anyway, Valvano was very upset with the officiating. And so the official got near him during a free throw, and he said, I need to ask you a question, Mr. Official. He said, sure, coach. He said, can you give me a technical foul for what I'm thinking? He said, no, we, we cannot. He said, well, I think you stink. And then he gave him a technical foul <laughs> right there. Oftentimes, that's how it is in the world. Can I tell you what I think? Sure. But the minute we make the truth claim of who Jesus is, everything shuts down. Everybody goes, oh, I didn't want to hear that. We're free to believe what we want to believe in our world, but we will be met with claims of arrogance that we would claim to know the truth, big T capital truth. And to know that truth would put everything in opposition to it in a place of being false and not true. So the first thing we may be wet with is some would say we are arrogant. Others may say that it's cruel to claim Christ is the only way to salvation. This is only true if Christ isn't the only way. Otherwise, it's exactly what people need, and the most loving thing we can do is share the gospel. As a believer, we would say that the most cruel thing we can do is not share the truth claims about Jesus and ultimately be apathetic towards people receiving Christ or not. The world may charge us with cruelty that we would say that Christ is the only way to salvation. As believers, we would say the most cruel and unloving thing I can do is be apathetic towards the eternal state of your soul. That this life isn't all there is. That wringing as much pleasure out of this life isn't the full summation of what it means to be one made in the image 
of God. And I think one of the most searing indictments of the church's kind of cowering in the face of this charge of cruelty comes from an atheist. Penn Teller, the famous magician and atheist, said the following once. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, that is, share their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not share the gospel? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe that a truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Penn Teller, an avowed atheist, gets it right. If it's true, and we confess and believe that it is, then how much of the love and the grace and the mercy of the gospel are we missing if we're afraid of a socially awkward interaction to share the good news of what Christ has done. Christ can still save people through socially awkward interactions. We have to ask ourselves, do we believe the gospel is good news for others? Some may say then that it's divisive to claim Christ is the only way to salvation. It is divisive in this sense. Everyone who has ever lived will have to answer for where they put their faith. No one gets out by claiming, I just didn't know. Everyone will give an account for their life and for where they put their faith. And depending on where the faith is put, depending on where we place our faith, heaven and hell are the only viable options after this life. Even Christ himself said the following in Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says, yes, it is divisive. The proclamation of who Jesus is is not a net neutral action at any point. The full proclamation of who Jesus is always brings division. But there's healthy division and there's unhealthy division. The division that Jesus brings is a healthy division that clarifies for people what they're going to do with the encroaching sense of guilt for their sin. The full proclamation of Jesus and the gospel provides a moment of clarity in the midst of the confusion of our world. And it allows divisiveness to do its work, which is to put people in a position to make a decision about who Jesus is. Not that there's a third way, not that there's a fourth way, not that there are many ways, but there is one name under heaven by which men will be saved, and it's the name of Jesus. And to proclaim that is to put the dividing line of history into the conversation. But it's division that brings clarity. It's division that brings honesty. 
It's the vision that brings a moment where people would perhaps in faith respond to the good news of who Jesus is. So we may be labeled as arrogant, cruel, divisive, narrow-minded, old-fashioned, intolerant, unloving, and a whole host of other derogatory comments. But go back with me to Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Faithfully proclaiming the good news of the gospel in word and deed. Bearing witness to Jesus both through our acts of compassion and grace and mercy and kindness and bearing witness to Jesus through the full confession of the gospel and who Jesus is and what what Jesus has done is an act of spiritual warfare. But when we're met with opposition like these men were, the question before us is this. In our response, would it become clear to those around you that you've been with Jesus. And Jesus wasn't afraid to tell the truth to the religious leaders. Jesus wasn't afraid to track down people that he healed and say, get your act together and stop sinning. Like he did with the man at the pool at Bethesda. He heals him and finds him later and says, this wasn't just a get out of jail free card, bro. Get your life together. To faithfully proclaim Jesus brothers, to have a life marked by being with Jesus. We'll falter and waver to the degree that we neglect our own time with Jesus. And we'll react more in line with our favorite political pundits or sports talk hosts in the way that we debate and get angry and raise our voices and yell and scream and devalue the very message we've just proclaimed. The beautiful thing about the disciples is in the calm sureness of their response everything that they had done and everything they had said to that moment was validated because they couldn't help but notice and confess these men have been with Jesus. And so when you feel the pangs of isolation when the reality of the maybe beginnings of persecution with your family picks up, would your response be one where your family would marvel, where your friends would marvel, where your coworkers would marvel and go, I may not agree with what they're telling me right now, but here's what I can't deny. They've been with the one they're confessing to me. They've been with him. And so while I may not think it's true right now, I can't deny that it is true in their life. It gained the disciples a foothold to continue to share the good news of the gospel because it was evident that they had been with Jesus. They were filled with the Spirit. They were straightforward, eloquent, reasonable defenders of the gospel, even though they hadn't received any type of traditional, by the other's standards, rabbinic training. But they were not defensive of themselves, nor did they complain that things weren't going their way. They simply confessed and pleaded with the rulers of Jerusalem to repent and believe in the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And may the power of the gospel and grace and mercy of Jesus have the same effect on us.
May people be swayed by the winsome way we live our lives and confess the gospel to recognize that we have been with Jesus. And may we never waver in our steadfast proclamation and defense of the gospel until Christ returns or calls us home. Let's pray.